Dave, mm, thanks for coming today. It should be interesting to talk to you. I, don't know, I had a few listen to some of your podcasts, and they sounded like fun. And when you sent your first email over, and you talked about the books, and my ears went. Well, that's good, good because we uh, we talked to a lot of bibliophiles and a lot of people who who love books, love a lot of people who make books, mm-hmm. and so that's the category that you fall into. We are in. Tokyo right yes, now. this is the Asakusa district of Tokyo. So in what is our new shop? I've been in Japan now for 30 odd years But this is a new venture for us where we're trying to bring our prints to a wider audience So this is a retail outlet then? It's a factory actually, I and mean, it's the weekend now, it's Sunday So upstairs there's nobody, but if on the weekdays there's four people up there printing away morning until night making prints This is an actual factory here, so Interesting you should use factory. I think of Andy Warhol when you say that. Well, maybe it's the same thing. I don't know. I don't know too much about his work, but uh, we get all the time people thinking too much that we're making art, art, art. No, we're in the printing business. Right. So what happened was 35 years ago, let's say roughly, Mm -hmm. you were in Toronto at the time. You're you're Canadian. Uh, When I first learned about Prince Union. Exactly. That was about 40 years ago, actually. I'm a Canadian. I'm a British-born Canadian, and I was living in Toronto. A bit uh, at loose ends, as many 29-year-old people are. I was acquainted with some woodblock prints. I saw them in the wall of a gallery there, of, I think a small gallery that I believe is still there, the Stuart Jackson Gallery in Toronto. I think he's moved since the day I saw him. And he would probably not remember me, of course. I was just some dude that walked in off the street, looked at some prints and chatted for a minute. But it was actually a life-changing experience. It sounds a bit dramatic to say this now, but looking at the history, yes. I saw the prints on the wall, saw them lit beautifully, and saw some depth there that I didn't understand at the time, but it was just it just captivated. What do you mean by depth? There was something there. You know, when we think of a picture, we look at a, a picture in a magazine or something right now, whatever. I don't know. No, I'm not talking about the content of the picture, who's doing no. what. I'm talking about the physical object Two-dimensional and versus Yeah, three. and it's just, these days, it's just flat and tasteless and, and whatever. I mean, modern offset printing is hugely efficient. It's wonderful. It helps us spread information around the world. But my God, it's tasteless, you know. And a traditional Japanese woodblock print seen under a nice light is just so deep and rich. It's, you just want to eat it. It's just, just so captivating and beautiful. I'm sorry we're doing an audio podcast here. You know, people are going to be perhaps frustrated by this. Uh, we'll take photographs. Okay. Yeah. Okay, okay. And we'll point them to your, uh, your YouTube videos. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. So you were captivated. What do you do about it? Well, on that day, nothing, but the seed was planted that, you know, I'd maybe like to try making something like this. And, you know, as opposed to a young Japanese person who, if they see something they want to try, their first job is, i got to go and find a sensei in Canadian society. It's a bit different. You know, you see something, I think I can figure that out. And, you know, it's more of a, a DIY culture, so what a woodblock print. How difficult could it be? You know? mm-hmm. Got an X-Acto knife in the drawer, is a piece of wood somewhere. Hacked up a piece of wood, got some pigment of some kind, slapped it on, and I didn't have the proper tools, but made a print. Took it off the block, and uh, I see there actually is something there, and you know that I couldn't catch. Of course, obviously, my print was just a piece of garbage; it was nothing. Right. But it made me realize. It made me realize that there was something there that this was worth investigating, and let's see if we can figure this out a bit more carefully. Something there, because it when you were doing it, it made you feel something. Is that it? 
I'm not sure what to say. I don't want to sound too pretentious about this. It goes back to what we said before, that the visual appearance of these things. There's something a bit captivating and deep there. You know, I keep Landscapes and... No, no, I'm not talking about the content of the no, imagery no, at all. That's no, of just, no interest okay. to me whatsoever. I'm talking about the physical object, you know. Yeah. And that's, that's one key that was all the way through my life with these things. I don't really much care about the pictures, you know. I've had various exhibitions and done things and people come to me and, my God, the wonderful art you've made. And I say, thank you, but that's, from my point of view, that's not it. it Maybe in your world about the books, the content of the story, the content of the book that's on the page, and then the physical book, the letter, press, the paper, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. And I'm the guy that does the paper and the press and, and the ink and stuff. Mm. The particular content of what's on that page, well, other people, I guess, have an interest in this. I well, it's funny, that's so. how a collector sees things. You know, I love the mm. say, a dust jacket or, mm. or a typeface or something. Mm. You know, the books that I'm not going to read, but I love having them because of the physical... Okay, but somebody could come back to make the argument that there's no point that without a real content on a story, that what's a book without, you know, I mean, yeah. I'm not going to argue that point, but it could be made. Yes, no, no, it has been made, yeah. But luckily for us, you see, in the Japanese way, it was different people. The people who did the pictures were artists. Yeah. Then the, the design went to a factory for production, and I'm the factory guy. So it's perfectly okay to be a specialist in just this side of it. The printers didn't do design by themselves anyway. So right. I take either traditional designs or I take designs from a friend of mine, whatever in America, Jen Henry or other contemporary people, yeah. and I do the manufacture. The joke around here is that it's kind of like Apple and Foxconn. You know, Apple designs computers and the companies over in China do the actual manufacturers. Right. Sort of like right. We're Foxconn without the suicide nets <laughs> mm -hmm. so far. Okay, so you were captivated by the, the mm. physical essence of these uh, these prints, and that took you to Japan. Well, it's a roundabout, yes. Yeah. I started making them as a hobby just for fun, and this is pre-internet. There's no English language books about this, so it's really self-struggle at the moment. Yeah. And a number of things came together. I had met a young Japanese woman over there. We had a couple of kids still living in Canada, and then it turned out that her parents got old, so we had to think about taking care of her parents. We wanted our kids to learn a bit of Japanese. I was curious about Japan, then it was a thing about maybe I can learn a bit more about printmaking, so a bunch of things together. Mm -hmm. So we cut loose and came over here, and that's now 32, 1986, so it'll be 32 years ago. Which takes takes a lot of balls to do that. Well, people keep telling me this, you know, all over the... They tell me this again and again. We're just having fun, you know. I mean, what do you do? You chase your nose. You follow your nose. Well, no, some people don't. Some people go play it safe. And maybe that's for them. That's the best course. It's mm -hmm. okay. You can't tell everybody that they should not be a salary man and go and follow your dreams and the world will follow. Because I think for many people that might not be true, you know. Yeah. Whatever for me, it worked out. We, we worked very, very hard for a number of years doing lots of different things. And part of it was luck that that thing that I had become interested in, this woodblock print, did have enough depth, you know, to be able to sustain a long term interest in making it and producing it. So you're telling me then that there's no, there wasn't any particular content like the Ukiyo prints that are so famous and so connected to well, no, maybe the actually, The way to tell the story might be this. is yeah. When we came to Japan, I really didn't know much whether there was going to be other apprenticeships waiting, other teachers, other people. Is there somewhere I'm going to be able to fit in and learn this and stuff? Right. I knew nothing about it. And there was nothing. The, the war 
destroyed all the last workshops and, and master-apprentice relationships. And really, over the course of the 20th century as a whole, woodblock printmaking here, traditional woodblock printmaking, had just pretty much died and fade away. It meant things back in the old days when they were making pop culture imagery, kabuki or whatever, but through the 20th century, nobody made interesting creative prints. It was just reproductions for the tourists again and again and again. Reproductions so of the, the... The famous the, Great Wave or whatever it was. Yeah. So again and again. So the, and, the guts had disappeared and there was nothing left. But okay. one thing I got really, really lucky on, and this is something that might be of interest to you or your viewers, in the way that Japanese look on things like ukiyo-e and woodblock printmaking. And we were chatting about this just this morning with a lady in, this, in the shop here. Imagine uh, an elegant Japanese lady, she's been to a good college, she's wearing a kimono, she's coming down the street, she's perhaps coming back from her ikibana lesson. Let's interview her for a second and ask her, please, Mrs. Suzuki, please list up for me the Japanese arts, the thing that you feel are important to Japanese culture. And her eyes will light up because we're interested and she'll say, ikibana, for her it's number one, she's just come back from her ikibana class. And then we'll poke her some more and she'll say, okay, it's calligraphy, maybe come in. And then she has a buyo, Japanese dance, maybe she practices. Yeah. And then uh, tying obi or oko, incense, or, or bundaku, the, the, the doll theater. You know, the, the list will go on and on and on and on. We're waiting for her. I'm a printmaker and I'm waiting for her to get to a certain thing on the list. And she sort of hasn't got there yet. So I'm poking her list, list some more, list some more. And this can go on for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, a half an hour. And the point I'm going to make to you is that she will never, ever, ever say ukiyo-e or Japanese printmaking. For a woman like that, what we do is not even on the horizon. It's not part of the Japanese culture. It's not one of the Japanese arts. It, well, it's not one of the high, high no, class. No, it's not, not even in the same thing. It's not, she would, and when we poke her and we say, what about ukiyo-e? She, her eyes will roll and she'll say, oh my God, the foreigners, they just keep talking about hokusai, that awful man. I'm semi-exaggerating, but not mm. much. They had thrown it away. It was the printing business, and for the most part, it was porn. It was porn. And for her, just to be associated with this, that's nothing to do with what she wants to be part of. That's interesting. So, yeah. And for most Westerners, because we don't see that background, we see these beautiful, drop-dead, interesting artistic designs and manufacture. Yeah. We recognize instantly this is world-class art. This genre, Wukiwe, is one of the best creations ever put together by the hand of man. But because of her cultural, can I say, her cultural blinders, her cultural training, she doesn't perceive it this way. And she's right, and we're right. We're looking at the same thing from very different So we're looking points. at high and low culture, I guess, is the, the differentiation. Well, we've taken something that was low culture by her standards, and we ourselves have elevated it. And yeah. she doesn't get that. She yeah. still doesn't want to go along with that. Because a lot of these beautiful women in these yeah, prints, know, they were, they were, were it was advertising, they, of course. We've got them on the wall here in they our were shop. Prostitutes. Yes, yes, yes. But the interesting thing is that those prostitutes, uh, they practiced calligraphy. They were musicians. They played these yes, high-level yeah. games. Them up. Yes, so where you go, where you go. Yeah. These things are all very much mixed together, you know, very it's, much mixed together. And those girls too. You mentioned the word prostitute in the sense of for us these days, that's sort of a bad word. We think of bad girls. These women had no control over this at all. They had been young farm girls sent into, you know, sold to the big city and stuff like that. Mm. They were young, 15, 16, 18, 20. They were just, you know, trapped in that culture. So did this uh, ukiyo, is that what caught your eye? When no, you, I said the no, content it, it is of no interest to me. Okay. It didn't matter. I don't even remember what was on the wall that day, other right. than it looked like 
you know, we've sort of replicated that here today in our shop. We put the prints on the wall in the same way because I yeah. want people to have that same experience. What is this? My God, these are so beautiful. How yeah. do you do this? Yeah. yeah. And that happens to us now here daily. So it's kind of a, these are kind of a visual version of letterpress is what they it's are. It's exactly yeah. letterpress. I mean, in yeah. your book, well, imagine some, there's a museum where there's just offset, 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 and then there's one showcase where they've done the light, right, and you yeah. can see the book. Someone's going to stop in front of that showcase and say, oh my God, what is this? Yeah. When you and I were kids, all the books were like that. We yeah. used to go and sit by the window and read them because we wanted to be able to see and touch this thing. And we, what we do here is letterpress, plain and simple. The washi is thick paper. We press our pigments into it with good firm pressure on a human printing press. And it's letterpress. And as such, it needs a nice environment, proper lighting. You know, too many bright lights shining all over erases the palpability of these things. So under nice light. Okay, I know you're not interested in content, but I, but I think mm -hmm. a lot of people are of course, interested of course. in uh, Ukiyo. So maybe if you could give us a, just a little bit of a, a background on what it is and when it was popular and why it was popular and you're okay, doing it now without, too, okay, yeah, like yeah, you're using sure, the, sure, some sure. of the sure, prints. Exactly, and, yeah. exactly. Without wanting to sort of move into lecture mode here because nobody wants that. One thing that perhaps some of the people hearing this may misunderstand is people come here always and they think this word ukiyo-e means woodblock prints. And that's sort of a first level misunderstanding because ukiyo, the floating world, is a theme. It was behavior, it was theater, it was literary activities, it was scroll painting. It wasn't specifically woodblock prints. And you have to be careful how you describe it, because when you just straight out translate it, the floating world, you get an image of a hedonistic lifestyle where people were thinking life may end, there might be another great fire next week, we're gonna lose it all anyway, so let's just party up and, and keep going. It's not quite that loose. It wasn't a party culture. But it was a culture that recognized that the cherry blossoms are going to fall and that we're here for a while and that, uh, mm -hmm. you know... Carpe diem. Whatever, you know. And it wasn't yeah. a Christian society where they were looking in any way at a heaven and a hell. There was no... That wasn't in the mix at all. But if you just simply translate it as a hedonistic lifestyle, I think it gives a bit of an incorrect mood. You know? Right. So what's the, what, what's well, the difference? Well, you, you mentioned yourself, those men who were visiting those, uh, shall we call them tea houses, whatever. It was a place where they had uh, stimulating conversation. It was right. a good tea. You know, the women were good dancers. Culture. And stuff like this. It was very cool. The nearest approach would be, I think, if you go back to uh, in the 1800s in Paris, the Salon culture that we read about or hear about in this, maybe earlier, 1700s or 1800s. Yeah, yeah. Some of the women there were offering other activities as well, but the men who went to those salons were interested in you know, very cultured activities. You know, was, uh, and so the subject matter was, uh, as we were discussing, it's, it's often courtesans, landscapes, theater. There were three or four major characteristics, yeah. yes. So beautiful women, courtesans, uh, travel was one of it, uh, kabuki theater, they were maybe the main three, bang, bang, bang. And simply put, we can use the word pop culture, I mean, nobody used that term that day, but it was, it was the culture of the people of the day. There were other people over in the Imperial Palace doing careful, thought out poetry and stuff, but this was what the people of the town were looking at and talking about and doing. Mm -hmm. And these prints and books reflected the desires of the masses reflected that. You know. And so you said that these were done by printers who could make a buck at it, right? I guess it was, was a massive printing business. Right. I, I'm th the people who have researched this and who know the facts and figures would probably tell you the, the book printing business in Edo, Tokyo, through the 1800s 
was far and away bigger than anywhere else in the world. It was a massive, massive. Dozens of writers, dozens of, print, of, of artists and illustrators, hundreds of workshops making the book, and everybody was literate, and everybody read this stuff. Have you seen any books from that period? Have I have, you, yeah, I have. The, the, you know, the, I brought some here to show them. I, again, on the podcast, I'm not sure what to say. I'll, but I'll photograph them. So yeah. They are an astonishing treat. And there's so many things that Westerners are surprised when they see these. We know about the history of somebody like Charles Dickens, who put out his books and stories in serial form. Yeah, I'm Netflix. not sure if he was a pioneer of this or whatever. Right. He'd put out a story, part one, and at the end of it you would get to a cliffhanger. These were exactly the same. They came like this in two parts. And this one, this is uh, volume six of what would have been a 50 or 60 or 70 part series. They kept going as long as people kept buying them. Mm -hmm. And every one of them, absolutely, you get to the last page, I can't read this specialized biography, you yeah. get to the last page and they're all exactly the same. With one bound, he was by her side, he raised his knife, the dagger shone in the moonlight and come back. Two weeks from now, <laughs> the sequel, Did you say and they are cliffhangers. Yeah. These yeah. guys maybe pioneered that idea, whatever, right. and they sold them in the tens of thousands of copies. People bought them in the bookshops, put them into a little bookshelf on their back, went round town renting them out. And every Thursday at ten o'clock, the guy would come down this street, ring his little bell, and people would know here he is, and they can borrow it and put back the next one and pay him his fee. And they knew they had to finish it by next Tuesday at ten o'clock when he came round again with the next part. And in the meantime, the guys are carving it and printing it. it was that a sounds a lot like uh, people in America waiting, you know, in Boston at the docks for the next uh, the next installation of Dickens. Oh, from England, you mean? Yeah, England. So, guys, yeah. Okay. I guess. These look a little bit like the penguin, uh, say that you know the skinny little penguin. Yeah, books I get that, you. So, uh, so, so. But so, they're, so. they're they were charming. Hugely yeah. consumable. They're wonderfully charming. Yeah. And again, the stuff that makes no sense for me to talk about on a podcast. But maybe I, can I tell you this one little story? You sure. can take pictures and show people. Yeah. Let's find an example here. I'm gonna have my glasses on. You know, Japanese reads top to bottom. Yeah. And right to left. Now, what they've done with a book like this is they've mixed illustration and text. So sometimes when you look at it, it's a bit difficult. It's not a block page of text. Yeah. Now, can we see this here? Given that we're starting at the top and writing down, you'd see the person would read this section here. It would yeah. keep reading across. Now, where do you go next? Because there's all kinds of scrambled bits of text mixed in with the pictures. See the little symbol there? Okay. Do you look somewhere else on the page and see the oh, symbol here? Great. Okay, you can follow this now without yeah. me telling you where to go. You go down here. There's you know a, what we're going to do now. Yeah. Where, where is that little triangle to see where the text... Oh, there it is. Continues underneath the, gotcha. the guy's kimono. To the next, and that's the way you go around the page. Isn't that There's cool. so much fun. Yeah. So much fun. Normal Japanese people now can't read this. The language has changed enough over the past couple hundred years. It's changed quite a lot. If, if somebody heard this, read to them, they would be able to understand the story, but the lettering that's used is different from what was common in those days. And where did you get these from? Did well, you we sell them. It's our shop. We, no, we, no, I know, but where did you find them? They're not rare. They're all over the place. They were made in such huge quantities. We, we'd go to the dealer auctions and buy these things. Okay. So if someone, if a book lover is coming to, to Japan, this might be a cool little thing for them to try and search out. We're, we're not here to sell my stuff, I'm sorry, but yeah. No, these, these no, are but I'm, I'm saying we could the, do The it. shop you went to today, Harashobo, they've yeah. got these things. They're all the right. Just ask them and he'll bring So you, you could go to second-hand bookstores and find yep, yep, them. Yep, yep, there's three or four places. Yamada Shoten, Harashobo, Toshinsai, yeah. we've got a few. Yep. What about, uh, like, are there open-air uh, book 
markets and places like that that you could get them for a really good deal? I don't know. I don't do like flea markets and stuff. I'm no, sorry. no. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Anyway, they're charming. And uh, so, what year would this be? This would be about 1860 to 1880, 1890, somewhere on there. Okay. I'm not a researcher. I don't know the history of that particular novel. Sure. Some of the bigger names. Uh, it's Hoxai. Hoxai. Illustrated. That's he's earlier than this particular one you're looking at now. But yes, yeah. he was a. That was one of his main jobs, doing illustrations. Hoxai. Back books. Yeah. He did the he did probably the most famous image connected with Japan, and that's the know, Great Wave. Yes, he, of he course, called it a, course, a variety of different so things. He right? cut his teeth on this stuff in did his he? younger days. Is there a name for these? Uh, there's different styles of them. I know, just ehon, picture books. Ehon is the generic term that would that would cover the whole thing. Right. Okay. And I understand that Hokusai. Now this is interesting. Although he didn't uh, originate these. Uh, these these little booklets. He was the first person, apparently, that had a title called manga. Is that is the, I, that's okay? What I there understand. is yes. His name is associated with that. Uh, at some point back there in the early 1800s, a publisher had the idea to put together a book of little sketches. The one you're looking at here today, these are actually stories. The main idea is the story, and the artist came along to do an illustration. That but there's illustrations on every single page, right? Yes, it's, it's a, it's a well-illustrated book. But yeah, the, the I mean thing the you're talking about is the manga. We don't really know who is the first guy. All we know is that that publisher somehow approached Hokusai and or his students, gathered together a collection of the individual little sketches these people had been making, yeah. and put them into a book that had no text and no accompanying story. It was just literally a picture book. And the word they used on the title of this was the Hokusai manga. And it was a word that really was just sort of just coming into use at that time. We now know it as comic books, and there's obviously some kind of thread from that to this, but it's not a direct thread where Hokusai invented the comic book. It's no, just no. You know, the thing morphed over the years and different examples and different styles of it were done. And it exploded. It became hugely popular. It ended up coming out in 15 volumes. Some published it long after he was dead. Right. Some right. pirated, some put together with scraps that they found here and there. Right. But obviously it caught a chord. And there's something very interesting that, that I can sort of try and describe but that I don't understand myself. I've got a couple of those books at home, and when you open them, you look inside and there's this might be a page of people dancing or something. Next one's a page of, of animals, whatever. And what we must try and remember is that here in 2018, every one of us, every day, sees images morning till night. We see pictures, we see magazines, newspapers, our smartphone screens, we see movies, you know. Imagery to us is just, it's like the air we breathe in. You step back to 1815, whenever that was, and in the normal course of a person's daily life in Edo at that time, they wouldn't see a picture. There was no newspapers, magazines, there was no TV sets, there was no postcards and billboards all around yeah. town. They right. would not see an actual image until such time as they would be in the bookstore and pick that thing up and then they pull it forward and open it. And we can't understand what their brain was seeing because they must have opened that and there's a mountain and an animal. That's in black and white though, right? It doesn't matter. It's a thing. Human beings take these shapes and form sure. them into real objects. Our yeah. brains handle that. But my point, there's no imagery in this person's life. He may have gone mm. days, weeks, months, years without ever seeing a picture. Then all of a sudden you open this and my God, he must have gone shoom, right into that thing and it lived for him. 
yeah. in a way that you and I cannot possibly comprehend. Cannot comprehend. Imagine for a moment that we were deaf. One or two is weird. We, we communicate by drawing and stuff, whatever. And all of a sudden you're in a room and this tap turns on and an orchestra is there and you hear this. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what I'm... That's what it, it must have been something like that. When well, the only other place they could have seen kind of art would have been the church, let's say. There's no churches in Edo, Japan. There's, there wasn't anything. The nothing. normal townsman had no printed matter. He had nothing except these little tiny books. Okay. And when he sat down in a quiet moment and turned that page, opened that page, I'm telling you, he went zoom, right in it. It happens to us now in a really good movie. You go in, it's a rainy day, whatever, there's noise, cars, beep, beep, beep. You go in, they play some serials at first, and after a minute, the thing starts to go, and if it's a really good movie, you forget where you are, and you're living in there. Yeah, it was like a great novel, too. Okay, course. okay, whatever. I should perhaps use that example. I'm sorry for realizing who I'm talking to today. You get the idea. Sure. And we ourselves look at these things, and, oh, that's nice, that's nice, that's nice. Flip the page, looks kind of cool, but we don't get it, and yeah. we never will get it. Well, I think what you're suggesting, again, is something we can't we can't turn the clock back and it's it's like our generation we knew what it was like before the internet and we got the internet mm. and mm. it's mm. freaking amazing mm. what that mm. thing does but we think it's a hell of a lot more amazing mm. than, than my kids. our offspring yeah, yeah. Uh, they take it for granted that's so but the the flip viewpoint on this is that from my kids' point of view, they say we don't get it, and they are using it in a much more natural, drinkable way than I do. Yeah. You know, the different other line and the WhatsApp and whatever. They use it without even thinking about it as part of their daily. Right. You know, their brains have changed. Right. Yeah. So though you it's and an I think it's something there. special that they don't get that, yeah. they grok it in a way that we don't get. So I'm sorry. You know, this is good or bad. I don't know, but they grok it. Right. And I don't. We use it as a sort of a tool. They don't even think about it like yeah. that. They're just drinking, drinking yes. water, drinking air. You know? And it's going to get you know, smartphones. My God. Oh, know, this is the biggest experiment in human evolution on the fly yeah. that we've ever done. Way more than Gutenberg. Gutenberg changed human brains. This is way, way, way more. Yeah. We all know that. Let's look at the reception of these things then. Uh, as you say, they're hugely popular in the sort of mm. mid-1800s. Mm. Here in Edo. Yes, yes. Now... Ikeo prints were popular in Europe. At, at mm. When would that be? The late 1800s? They st the, the Westerners came here, what, 1853? Was that Perry's Black Ships, whatever? So right. from around the middle of the 1800s, stuff started to leave this country in yeah. big time and go over there. And the Westerners saw these same things, and as we touched on earlier, they saw them in a different way than the Japanese saw them. And uh, this is perhaps a sort of an of-course moment. And I, the easy, quick thing is that the Japanese, at the time they were becoming westernized, were eager to put behind the stuff that to them was routine and traditional Japanese. They wanted to embrace things that were new and western. Yeah. And the westerners, of course, were then and still are enamored with the exotic aspect of Japan. And these things were different from what they know in their own culture. Even though they were considered low culture in Japan. It wasn't, the Westerners didn't know that, didn't no, care. They didn't just know. admired the art, sure, artistry. Sure, sure. Took them for face value. But so, it's actually turned out for the better because if the Westerners hadn't done that and hadn't taken those over to all these safe havens, the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, the British Museum, the, you know, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. If they hadn't done that, those things would have been all tossed out on the trash heap. So this is not some vicious act of cultural appropriation like the Elgin marbles and they're going to want to take it back and stuff like that. That's not the case here at all. 
Japan had voluntarily said that stuff, who cares about that stuff? And yep. the Westerners just said, that's okay, I'm going to pick that up. If you're okay, sure, take it away. And it's happening right now. This is actually, this is super funny. You can think of us, I want to go into a bookstore now and look at an Utamaro print from 1790, whatever. They're all gone. They're in the museums, they're in the collections. But those early Westerners could pick them up for a nickel or whatever because the Japanese had thrown them away. So we're thinking, I want to go back in time. Give me a time machine just with a little bit of money in my pocket and I can amass this wonderful collection. Now, we all know there's no time machine. We can't do that. But the same thing is happening. I'm going to show you a print in a minute. It's from the Meiji era. The era when the printing presses were coming in. Can I stop going to go and get it? Sure, yeah. So, uh, can I restart so I can get Yeah, we're good. Here. The same thing is still happening right now all over again. There's a genre of prints called the kuchi e, mouth picture. Now, what that means is we have the English word frontispiece. A book or a magazine might have a, a colored picture on the front of it. They did this yeah. to try and make it more attractive and sell them, whatever. Mm -hmm. Now, this is in Japan in the 1890s or so. Printing presses have arrived. Magazines are being printed by printing presses. Bang, 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 bang. But there are still a bunch of craftsmen still left alive. And one of the publishers has the idea, I know what I can do. I'll hire some of these craftsmen to make a beautiful woodblock print. We'll stick it in the front of the magazine and people will buy our magazines more. And for a period of about 5 or 10 or 15 years, it was a real big boom. You can see the way I'm holding this print right now. I'm folding it up. That's the way it was originally folded and put in the magazine. The magazine was like, like a, a Reader's B5. Digest. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And people look in the bookstore. Well, that's cool. And it just helped a little bit people buy. Now, most of those magazines were then read and tossed. Some few people pulled the little print out and put it in the drawer before tossing the magazines. So now in the bookstores, the one you went to this morning, he has folders full of these prints. The Japanese don't like them. They're not interested in them. They couldn't care less about this. People like me, I'll die for this. So here I am. I'm in the bookshop. I look at this. It's priced 3,000 yen. I walk to the counter. I take those little blue pieces of paper. You've already seen them, 1,000 yen notes. I put 3,000 yen on the counter, take this home, and I go out. I get out the door. 3,000 yen is 30 bucks. Yeah, American. 30 bucks, 30 yeah. bucks. Now, I get out the door of that shop, and two people start laughing outrageously. The guy in the shop's laughing. Shit, he gave me 30 bucks for that thing. Look at this. We can party. I get outside. For just 30 bucks, look what I got. A world treasure. We are both happy. I've gone back in my time machine, and I can now get these prints. But I'll tell you, those two people who are laughing, who will still be laughing 50 years from now. It's me and the people who have got these prints. Wow, that's a great tip. That's whatever, and they're in the bookstores right now. They're not all 30 bucks, some are 30, 40, 50, whatever, and there's sure. good ones and there's junk. There's junk and treasures. If you've got a good eye, you'll go through and you'll find some really, really classy stuff. There's some junk. Some of them were poorly printed, but they're out there, and the Japanese, one, don't even know about them, and two, if you do tell them about them, they'll say, oh, yeah, and your point was... 
So how can you tell it's a good one? <laughs> well, again, go back to what I said when, when you first came in here one minute ago. I don't care about the story. I care about the technical. I'm looking at the technical aspects of this, how right. beautifully it's carved, how beautifully it's printed, and things like this. How do I tell it's being beautifully carved and printed? Well, I'm not sure what to say here. I mean, I'm looking at it with 40 years of experience. Exactly, We're talking yeah. about beautiful lines, not, you know, you could imagine misregistration here where the colors not fitting within the lines and stuff okay. like that. I don't have a bad example to show you. I'm sorry, no, I no. just have uh, nice ones. But if you don't care, if you can't tell, then it doesn't matter to you, does it? <laughs> if, if you love so, it, and it's, well, we'll, so. it's so, it's your eye, basically, that's uh, kind of straight, smooth, well, what is this anyway? Is this offset printing or no, what is no, it? No, no, this is a wood block. Printing. It is a wood block what, print. What, what, what heresy okay. are you talking here, sir? No. <laughs> look, 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 here, here's the block. Huh. Because that's a print from the Meiji time. It dates from about 1895. Right, I right. have made my own reproduction of it. You okay. can tell the difference. It's on brand new, fresh, clean paper. Okay. And here's the wood block. You can shoot pictures of these later. Yeah, you can yeah. see the way it works. A piece of wood has the pattern placed on it. You carve away. It's the old Michelangelo story. People said, how do you make that beautiful statue? He says, carve away everything that doesn't look like a horse or whatever. We carve away everything that is not those lines. Leaving the lines, and you can see how this works. Yeah. Pigment on there, press it on, and bang, off it comes. It's, it's, it's it really printing. Is, you know beautiful. how printing works. And just the, the lovely expression on her face, too. Well, content, content. Tell him about content. Well, you know, that's important <laughs> to some extent. I'm pulling the legs. I know, I know. <laughs> No, that's that's a great tip, and I like to find things like this. Is for if you're traveling somewhere and you're a book collector, and you you know obviously you don't read Japanese, but this is something that you could yeah, go into these bookstores for course, and, and and find. Of course, make a note. Kuchi e is picture. Right? We had ukiyo e, ukiyo pictures. This is kuchi e mouth picture. Mouth being the front of the magazine. Kuchi A. Kuchi A. You could ask for you this. You go back to the place you were there this morning, go and ask. He'll bring your folder from the back, open it up, and wait. And you're saying these babies will uh, oh, wait, be a I'm good investment. The, oh, no, wait, 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 wait. wait. <laughs> the last thing you want to do is come to a woodblock pinmaker for investment <laughs> advice. So I'm not going that way. We don't care about that stuff at all here. So right, I'm not right, right. promising <laughs> you it's going to be worth anything. My point was that no, beautiful prints are still available for a song because the Japanese don't care about it. Exactly. Okay, great. And this is yeah. not investment advice. I'm sorry. Right. Okay. Talk to your broker. <laughs> no, no, I don't want to talk to him. Okay, so what that takes us then to the 1890s. Yeah, and this is the next part of the story because, as I said, already at that time, the printing presses were here. I mentioned the books. These yeah. are history. This is gone, those little books we looked at a few minutes ago. Right. The books are now printed by metal type on printing presses, not rotary presses. They were, you know, early days. So the last hangover of the woodblock prints was as the frontispiece and then bang, that's even gone too. It's okay. just printing presses all the way down, and there's nothing left for woodblock prints but the souvenir business. Yeah. And in retrospect, the publishers all through the 20th century made a huge mistake. It's easy for me to criticize them because I'm sitting, you know, it's, it's hindsight. They lost touch of their roots, the point that they should be making things that, it, that people, popular culture, that everybody was interested in. They lost that, and they lost their business. And I don't know the actual numbers. From 500 workshops that were left in 1890, it went to whatever. There's three or four workshops left now. I don't know the actual These numbers. were woodcut Wood workshops? It was the printing business. All the printing yeah. business in this vast metropolis, printing all those books, yeah. were made on wood box. There was rows and rows and rows of guys carving, 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 printing, 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 printing. Right. The printing press came in, and kaboom, it was game over. Game over. 
because the things we look at as being the thing that we now love and treasure, yeah. it was of no interest. They were talking about efficiency at putting information on the printed page. Yeah, mechanized and... So that's uh, why offset printing took over in the West, of course. Okay. It's not bad, it's just that's the way things go. So it sat that way for a good part of the 20th century, you're saying? Well, because the number of workshops gradually decreased because there was nobody making original, interesting work. It was just simply tourist business, tourist business. And the war took care of a whole bunch of that for almost a whole generation. So a bunch of the workshops, that was it. Yeah. The workers had been conscripted. And even when they were still here, there was no nobody was buying tourist woodblock prints in 1941, of course. Obviously. Okay. After the war, there was a bit of a bump in it when the Olympics came and the, the GI tourists were here through the occupation. There was a bit of a bump. In, in making reproductions, tourist reproductions. Of the... Ukiwe. But it's a dribble, a drabble. There's a, a craftsman's association here in Tokyo. I'm a member of it. They have a you know members list. And they print it again every year, every year, calling out the guys who have died. And it's, I think there's about 26 names left in it. I don't know. But that's, that's not that's the final act. You, because, yes, that's where we come Yeah. In, so that's where we so, so 40 years ago, you came came on the scene and you were looking to learn... And you couldn't really find. Too I didn't many know any of the stories I just told you. I knew nothing about that. All, right. I, all I knew was that woodblock prints, they look cool. Maybe there's people here I could learn and do that. And then I think I probably got a bit scrambled when I told you the story earlier the fact that I was very lucky. And then I got diverted and told you about the fact that it's not high class art here. Right. And the reason I say that I got lucky is because of that. If you want to say learn Ikebana here. What do you do? You choose your sensei. You go to the school, the group, the Iemoto. If you want to do calligraphy, you do the same thing. If you want to do this or that, all the things I mentioned on that list. Yeah. But because woodblock printmaking and ukiyo-e is not part of that, there are no Iemoto structure. There's no schools. There's no classical ways to do it. There's no teaching. You are yeah. totally free to do what you want. Japan knows I'm here doing this, they could care less, there are no barriers, there are no formal ways, there is no ladder, you have to step up one by two. I get a friend of mine, he works for the Japan Times newspaper, he's here studying biwa, classical biwa. I haven't seen him a couple of years, so I don't know the update, but last time I spoke to him, he'd been at this now, it would have been seven years or so. He has yet to be allowed on the stage. The sensei doesn't think he's quite ready for it yet. Now, if I'd been in a situation like that, I tell you, I would have been out of there in two weeks. You know? yeah. Plus, also, you're paying and paying and paying and paying. paying. No, is, it, is that because it's... It's a, because it's a classical art. Yes, 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 yes. And the same thing. And it's got all sorts story. of structure. It's got it. structure in schools and classifications yeah. and guidebooks and texts and the way we do this and tradition. And, and this doesn't have any of that because i got to say the same thing. And it was just the printing business. And yeah. Nobody cared. Yeah, okay. So you gradually learned the craft, I the mucked art. around uh, looking at it, getting a chance to visit a couple of the guys who were doing it, learning a little bit from them, a little bit not from them. And one thing, again, I lucked into, which, again, I didn't understand at the beginning, is how degraded the woodblock printmaking technology had become through the 20th century. These guys who are still here now, they learned from their... Ma not master, but they learned from the guy before them, the guy before them, the guy before them. So they feel like they're the inheritors of the tradition. But because they're not outside it, because they're inside it, they don't really see where they're going. They're not interested in prints, they don't study the old stuff. They think they're the inheritors of the tradition, and they don't realize that they're just a degraded, degraded tatters of it. But me, coming what in... What does that mean? They're, they're no good. They're, the technology is awful. The prints they make are no good. They don't understand how beautiful they used to be. Because they're in this bubble that has come to there, and they don't look outside it, and they don't know. 
But, but what it, again, what does that mean? They produce lousy prints because... Let me get you an example. This is easily the best way to try to explain what's going on. Sure. Here's two examples. These are actually, these are reproductions, color reproductions I don't have. This is from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It's a printout of the, their copy, or one of their copies of The Great Wave. Yeah. It'll serve for the moment just to show the way they were made in the old days. This other print I have with me here, this is something sold by another shop down the street here. Okay. It's the same Great Wave. See yeah. from a distance, whatever, here we are. Yeah. Now the Met copy, when we look at it, we can see that all the lines in it are actually, it looks like calligraphy. Someone who knows calligraphy could recognize this is all done by a brush. It's not a pen and everything has strokes. It's not readable lettering, I-E-U-A-O, it's, it's waves, but it was done by a brush. And the carver of the day took that brush stroke work from the famous Hokusai and he carved as best he could brush strokes with taste and energy and vividness. His yeah. job was to reproduce those brush strokes in multiple copies. That was his job. With the same uh, attention that one might give to calligraphy. That was his job, to make yeah. it look like a real calligraphy, even though he was using a steel brush, the iron brush, whatever. And yeah. he was, they were so good at it, you could, you know, people think, oh my God, this is drawn, right? No, it's a woodblock print, but that was how good they were. Yeah. The carvers. Now the printers, because this was just being slammed off, slammed off, slammed off, slammed off, and tossed out into the streets. The printers were careless. Look at the brush strokes. Rush, 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 pick another one. Rush, 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 pick another one. Rush, 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 pick another one. Speed was their forte, because this wasn't art. Okay, there's example one, the old one. Beautifully carved, quite carelessly printed. We now jump ahead to 2015. You're probably not a calligrapher, but if I compare those two side by side, what do you think about this person's version of those brush strokes? It's a parody. It's a tragedy. It's a travesty. This carver couldn't care less. He knows the people who are going to see it couldn't care less. He's not going to take the time and trouble to do that. He's just going to work. Well, He's not going to replicate it. It's a parody. He can't do it's it anymore. It's an adaptation rather than it's direct not translation. Whatever, it's not even close, but whatever, whatever word you want to use. But the sure. printing, look at this, the smooth, clean printing. Yeah, yeah, it's much more... Because uh, these guys know this is going to be art to hang on a wall. Right. So in the old one, the carving was masterful, the printing was careless. In the new one, the carvers have totally lost the thread and the printers are doing something that's not, not so bad. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Look at that uh, silly-looking so, image so in the I sky just, just there. It's like a ghost. Oh. Looks like a so ghost. So my point was, without wanting to get in trouble here, the current workers, they actually don't know this because they don't study the old ones. They're not interested. Me, I come in here not knowing any of this. When I came here, I didn't know any of this. Right. I have no teacher, there's no teaching, so what do I do? I go to Jimbo Cho, that same shop you went to this morning. I buy a bunch of prints, I look at this. How do they do that? Let's try this. Ooh, that's not it. No, let's see, let's try again. How do they do that? Those prints and books yeah. were my teachers. And you were followed them religiously. I'm trying to. We're in a different era. The air is different, the wood's different, the paper's different. You know, I can't. No, but your objective was to pay homage to the original... I'm just trying to do a good job. It's, it's, no, no, it's but you wanted, to, you, you wanted to replicate this as closely as, as you possibly could. I want to make prints that are as good as the old ones, yes. So, right. so, so, so. But it's not homage or anything. I just want... It's, it's ego. You know, we all want to kick ass. We all, you, know, you want to make the best podcasts on the planet. <laughs> you want to find good people to tell good stories and say, man, that's a good one. People are going to love listening to this, right? We want to kick ass in, in the good sense of doing our job well. Yeah. That's yeah. all. Okay. That's all. And luckily, I've stumbled into a field where, one, nobody else is doing it. 
too. Nobody else even knows what, because I've been in here 30, 35, 40 years. I now grok this to a way that very few other people actually do, just by virtue of being, having done this for such a long time. Right. And there's no competition. Nobody else. I don't know why. Foreigners come here, they do karate, but, they but do judo, they do this and that. They line up to get on the airplane to come over and do all these things. I said the guy was practicing Biwa. He's got a dozen compatriots. Nobody else has done what I do, who wants to come and learn the technology of woodblock printmaking. Other people come here to make woodblock prints. They are artists. They design, they cut some rough shapes on wood and they make a kind of a print. Yeah. They do it the modern way where the same guy does designing and cutting and printing. And because they're not trained craftsmen, it's sort of a bit of a messy job. It may have very high art value, stupendously interesting art. I'm not trying to diss them. I'm just saying it's a different creature. But to me, there's so much depth in this technique and technology. I mean, all over the world where you're from, right, there's so many people doing letterpress printing. You bump yeah. into every, every back lane and some guy's got an old Albion press and he's found these yeah. cases full yeah. of type. There's a real hunger for yeah, that. Yeah, all people do it. Why am I the only one here doing this? I don't get it. It's not like I've no, you're put not, You don't want to invite competition. or Whatever, we make YouTube videos, come in, show, you know, it's not like we're hiding yeah. everything. My God, yeah. I'm the exact opposite. I'm showing as much as possible how to do this. Well, speaking of um, popular culture, what you've done that's fascinating is you've taken today's popular uh, culture. Ah, the new stuff we're making, yes. Yes, yes, yes. yes. And you've uh, <laughs> adapted it to the traditional We brought it. We've brought it full circle. We're yeah. we're doing the same technology, and we've now made real, true pop culture that's interesting to people these days. It's the video game characters you're talking about. And that's the right. We made so. Can you tell us video characters? Who like who? Well, I'm not supposed to use trademark names because this is all parody, and the companies who own those trademarks do know about us, and we've had them in here talking to us. We're unlicensed. Eh? We're unlicensed, right. so the it's a don't ask, don't tell kind of situation. Okay. We parody the characters in taste and mood and feel, but you can't use trademarked terminology and things like that. Understood. So, okay. So. Anyway, the point: but we take famous video characters, the guy who drives little carts around town, whatever, move him back 200 years into an ukiyo-e sort of style and feeling and mood, cut it and print it, make beautiful woodblock prints of this. And young people all over the planet have gone nuts for this and are collecting it. We now they can't, they can't appreciate the this, feel and this touch is what, of it. This is what happens. We've got some that are pretty expensive, but we've also got a bunch of them now. We, we're trying to keep our young carvers with work to be doing for training. So we've made a bunch of quite simple designs based on these video character parodies. Yeah. And they've got a lot of white empty space in them. They're cool and clean. And they're very inexpensive, so they're bought by young people. And what happens again and again and again? The people buy them from us, not because they're collecting woodbuck prints. They want that image. They get they want the, the content. They want the content. Yes, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm, I'm laughing as I say this. They want the content. They open it up. We've got a little instruction book, how to do it. Put it in your desk with a nice light. And then at that moment, right. they see, holy beep. And they look see, what look, I got. look what I got. <laughs> and it goes around and around and around. So I'm not being sub, this is not a subterfuge. It's mm. just, this is the way things are working as a double bonus for us. We didn't plan this. We didn't think anything about this. And the fact, the bad part of the story is when this idea came to us, it wasn't my idea. It came to me in an email one day from the guy who's designing these, Jed Henry. Mr. Bull, he'd looked up my Google, my website. Mr. Bull, I have a wonderful idea. I need your help to do the making. I'll supply the images. I forget the words. He said, we're going to steal Nintendo's characters and we're going to do this, blah, 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 blah. And I turned him down. 
turned him down flat. I do not want legal trouble. I got no money to do this, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he pushed back and I said no. And he pushed back and I said no. And well, long story short, he convinced me to do it. I couldn't afford to make the first ones. It's quite expensive to make the first ones we were doing. So I said, have you got the money to sponsor this? He said, no, I don't need money. Yeah. So I'm like, we've come this far. What are you doing? I have no money. You have no money. What are you going to do? He yeah. says, we'll just go to Kickstarter. And this is like seven years ago. I didn't know. I was like, kick, kick what? Kick what? He yeah. says, oh my God, you don't get it, do you? He explains Kickstarter. And then he, long story short, we do a Kickstarter campaign in 2012. And it blows the roof off. It's the biggest campaign that's ever been on Kickstarter at that time other than the top movie projects, the multi-million movie projects. Wow. And that was the, we were truly kick-started. And now what you see here, this three-story building we're occupying, the people streaming in here all day long. We've now got, I think it's 20, maybe 19 or 20 people working for us. Oh, we're nice. exhausted, we're exploding, and our woodblock prints are going to every corner and cranny of this planet. We've got a collector in Kazakhstan, looking at these prints, They're just everywhere. It so just that, does that make you happy? Does yeah, it make you it tired? Doesn't get, does I'm it exhausted, you... but it doesn't get any better than You're this. Okay. I'm 66 now. You're supposed yeah. to be like sort of thinking about maybe it's time to you know hit yeah. the golf course or whatever. Right. Unfortunately, success has come to me or whatever. We built this success at this age, so. But you're still healthy you for yeah. sure, just and go for enthusiastic go about it. it that's for, for sure. No, 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 go for it. I'm happy. Just before we close. You showed me um, a book that you'd produced, beautiful, boxed prints that took you 10 years to produce. Can you talk a bit about that? Okay. Uh, I didn't make a book. I made a set of 100 Just single prints. Prints, the right. The original okay. that I had started with was a book. We have it here. This book. Oh, you, okay, right. The original you, was you, a 100-page book. I made a set of 100 single prints. Because there was no way that and I could... And package them in a box. Yes, it's available. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We couldn't make a book because it was taking 10 years. You can't send a person one page a month for, for 10 years or whatever. And this is, a, this is a great pleasure for me to hold this. You know, you're, you're a book fan, so you no, can get I this too. That. The yeah. book we're holding right now, if we look at the back page of it, the colophon, it says it was published in Anier 4, which is 1775. Uh, to our American friends, that's an easily understandable date because uh, 1775 is very close to uh, yeah. another date close to their hearts. And this physical thing that I'm holding right now was actually pressed onto paper in 1775. And it's still, look at that, the paper is not bright white, but it is still, man, it's, it's a white shape. sheet of paper, the colors are here. And yeah. this is something that I should tell you is so important to us. It's a paradox. We've talked earlier about how the Japanese prints in the old days were disposable. They were pop culture, but they were just thrown away. They didn't last a long time. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that the material they were made of, the Japanese washi, has no pulp, none of the things that degrade and oxidize quickly. It's just raw mulberry fibers. So any given print from 1775, if it hasn't got in touch with a fire or an earthquake, is still here. And the prints we're making this afternoon in this shop are made on the same paper. And every little print today, the cheapest $30 print in this shop, will still be hanging around 200 years from now. Think that, about That's it, a big part of the appeal. My God. You know, of what, of what you're doing and what letterpress printers are doing and is, is the fact that this is not a throwaway product it's uh it's something that's made to last but you uh, so you uh, replicated a hundred images with a hundred poems hmm. am i mistaken in 
thinking that you wanted to illustrate different types of printing with each one of them, or there was no, 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 no. You're mixing a couple that? of things. Was, I don't was that was, something else? That was just simply. It was a project to make reproduce that 100 images. The images are already there. They're, yeah. They're pictures of poets. Imaginary. There's no cameras back then. The poet and the poem. So I just reproduced it. It was a kind of a self-imposed apprenticeship for me. What's the book called, by the way? The book is called Hyakunin Issue. 100 people, 100 poems, roughly okay. translated in English. And do you have your, what you've done for sale? Is it yeah, sold yeah, out? They're in the shops, yeah. They're, so you've still got we've some. We've still got some, yeah. yeah okay. It's not a big deal for us anymore. Yeah. We've gone on to much other things. But this thing, I could mention too, this is a very important part of Japanese literary culture. You know, we haven't talked about the content here so much, but actually, I hadn't realized when I started this... I'm scared to talk about content. Content, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> the point being that this thing, seen from our England-based, whatever, our English language, you know, obviously it came from... We honor Shakespeare, and that's what is that now? How his birth was 450? Excuse me. I'm yeah, exactly yeah, sure. we had the celebration of it's, it was the late 1500s he was born, or mid 1500s. Now, so. he's very much part of a language you and I are speaking this afternoon. Many of the phrases we've used today, perhaps originated with Shakespeare, he's really in the language right now, still tight, 400 years ago. Yeah. Before him, though, you start to lose it. It's Chaucer, it's then, I don't know, Beowulf, I don't know where it goes from there. There's not much in the early language there that is still present in our English language. Yes. These poems, the old, the newest one dates from 1300. Yeah. The oldest one dates from 700 or 720, somewhere around there. And most modern Japanese who have had some kind of basic education know these poems by heart. They know what they mean, they know what they're about, they can quote them. Is this old Japanese? Because you told me that the, the language don't, don't had changed. Don't confuse the words, the sound of the words, and the writing. Japanese is written with kana characters, with borrowed Chinese characters, with borrowed English characters for the word baseball. But the spoken language, well, it's evolved over the years. But if we were speaking to a person from the Heian era, we could understand each other. Okay. If we were speaking to a person, if somebody would sit here and read us this content of this Edo book we were looking at, yeah. we would understand the story. But the written form has changed quite a bit over the past, uh, since the war. It's been greatly simplified. So yes. people now cannot read this stuff anymore due to the simplification that's taking place. Okay. But the language itself, it's, it's uh, much more stable. But a literary work that was put together in the year 1300 or so is still an important part of the culture. Yeah. I'm not trying to say, yeah, we're, we're poor, you know, Eng English is poor. No. It's just whatever. It's just we, you know, when we were in school, you and I, we never heard about stuff like this. You know, it was just Shakespeare or nothing. But there are other cultures in the world that really do have a lot of other interesting stuff that's out there, and it's a good fun. And what's impressive is that it's it's still current. It's still known, mm. recited, I guess. Mm. Just finally, then, this other project you were working on, because I was really interested in that, you were illustrating the different types of print techniques in this project that you did? Ah, okay, I don't have that with me here to show it to you. Yes, I did a year and a half of making a, a print each month with the idea to try and show why the Japanese print is beautiful. I think we called it the, uh, the beauty of the Japanese print. Oh, no, the mystique of the Japanese print. Yeah. Sorry, it's, it's fading into the past now, whatever. <laughs> Have you got any of those for sale anymore? No, no, we don't. I, I saw what I got. And the problem now is that the printers we're training here in my workshop here are not yet good enough to print all the blocks that I myself have created over the years. Okay. So you're here a bit too early. Come back in a few more years and we'll probably have some of those in here okay. if our young printers have uh, climbed up high enough to reach that level. So is there anything left to achieve? 
for you? Yes, it's a very important point. I know we touched on this a little bit earlier in our conversation where we talked about those Couchier prints. The printing presses had arrived in Japan, taken away most of the easy work. And what had happened was a typical workshop back in the Edo or Meiji time. The kid comes in for the first day. He doesn't have any training. What does he do? He prints food wrappers, a little one-color food wrapper for the onigiri shop down the street. Then after he's been doing it a little while, he gets a little better. They're going to crank him up a little bit. He can do yeah, two-color wrappers for the books that were, that were going to be sold. Whatever. There was a ladder of different kinds of work. The top guys were doing this delicate Utamaro, beautiful Bijin Ukiwe pictures. And the bottom level was doing food wrappers. And all the way up, there was work of all kinds because it was the printing business in Edo. Now, yeah. in the late 1800s, early 1900s, in come the printing presses. And they destroy all the bottom level work because nobody's going to pay for hand printing for food wrappers anymore. Mm. Bang! So what happened? All of a sudden, within the space of 10, 15, 20 years, the guts was ripped out of the printing business. The top guys were still there because the tourists still wanted to buy Utamaru prints, but the, there was no work for apprentices. Right. So that's what killed it. There was no work for apprentices. All you've got left, you don't have level 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. All you've got left is level 8 and 9. You mm. can't run a workshop that way. Hi kid, jump. How high can you jump? Can you jump to level 8? You can't do that. Now, I built my own ladder over the years doing those hundred poets and trying this and trying this and trying this. So what we're trying to do here now is we're trying to replicate, rebuild a ladder where young printers and young carvers have simple work they can do on day one and then something a bit more difficult after six months and then you see where we're going up and up and up. Now, we're not there yet. I've got lots of blocks that I carved that are too difficult for these people, but bit by bit by bit, we're trying to recreate that ladder so that the people who come to work for me here have a future and have a climb. And so far, so good. And thanks to the popularity of those video game characters yeah. and the popularity of YouTube and the help we get from social media, yeah. YouTube specifically, those things all mixed together have helped me put this together. So you're recreating an old workshop then? No, we're creating a new workshop, well, but yeah, okay, what is how we use the, the traditional. Word. Because without a ladder of accomplishment, yeah. it's not going to happen. Well, you're, so you're going to leave quite a legacy then. If it works out, if it works out. It's, the main problem here is it's still too much a key man business. If I had a stroke tonight, yeah. we're done because we're not there yet. And I'm trying as much as I can to delegate this, to train these people, to pass it, the knowledge around to everybody in this building so that when I do check out tomorrow or 30 years from now, whichever it's going to be, they'll have a chance to keep going. That's wonderful. Well, thanks very much for talking. No, oh, thanks for taking the trouble to come. I've rambled a bit. I'm sorry. They always all. Does seem to go this way. But no, uh, I think we've produced a really good podcast here. Okay, thank you very much. Good. Now let's take some good pictures so that people can see what this is all about, <laughs> okay, right? Okay, great. <laughs> okay. Let's do that. Bye for now. <laughs>